Although I'm a little hesitant to a little hesitant to start without my better half, but I know she's on her way. She's been sending me text messages telling me what I need to remember. So I know she's on her way. Be thinking as we we're not started yet, but be thinking as we um, as I share this morning any questions that you have. Actually, I'm torn because I have two things I would like to end with, and I don't think there are time for there will be time for both. So, but we'll see. But if you have some questions or comments or testimonies or whatever um, about what the Word has um, accomplished in you through looking at this little letter, then uh, be prepared at the end, and we'll. I'll, I will field the easy questions, and boy, this is ringing. A little feedback here. I'll trust they'll get that straightened out in a minute. <laughs> uh, the easy ones I will field, and the hard ones Peter's going to stay in here and answer. So, <laughs> so let's begin. Are we ready? Okay. I put this in your notes. Do you agree or disagree with the statement that as human beings, we bristle, we cringe when someone asks us to do something out of obedience or just to be accountable? Or am I the only one? Does the challenge to be accountable bring up some kind of a negative reaction in you? Do these motivations of obedience and accountability somehow cause us to just recoil a little bit. Why is that? Why is that? So far, Paul has, in the first 20 verses of this letter, emphasized the duty of love, the refreshing of all the saints, the familial relationships between our father, my child, our sister, my brother, my very heart, a beloved brother, your partner, our beloved fellow worker. These are the kind of term, this is the kind of terminology that Paul has written with. Those are somehow, I think to most of us, those seem as more positive motivations. Love, family, refreshing, partnership, fellow workers. But what I want us to see today in today's text is that obedience and accountability are concepts we need to embrace with just as much or more eagerness than we do those other things that we feel more comfortable about. That's a daunting task. But this is an obedience and an accountability, accountability based on the commands of a loving God. This is accountability to the claims God has on our lives because he has purchased us with the precious blood of his dear son. Let's read the text. Confident of your obedience, Paul writes to Phil, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark 
Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, thank you for this compelling example that you've given us in this little letter breathed out by the Holy Spirit through Paul to us to show us what your love compels us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we'll follow the same format we've been following. We'll take each verse, make sure we understand, hopefully, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Paul, and then consider the, the main points of application, and that section is going to be very short this morning. Hopefully, if you have any questions about this letter, there'll be time to ans- ask those questions. Hopefully, you'll also have an opportunity to share any brief comments or testimonies you may have that result from hopefully the Holy Spirit empowered responses in your own lives so that you've to what you've learned from this short little study and in verse 21 we see see a new and different motive introduced for Paul Phil's forgiveness of moose and their reconciliation in Christ It's a motivation that comes from a heart of humility, obedience. I asked the question at the beginning of this class, if you and I bristle or cringe at the idea of obedience, and I confess that I do at times, that's my natural reaction. And I ask, why is that? Maybe none of you have this same reaction to being called to obedience. Maybe it's just me, so maybe this is just for my benefit. Well, for me, the answer to the question why I have a negative reaction stems from a simple, deadly five-letter word. Pride. Thank you. In the verses before verse 21, we have seen that the motives to forgive and be reconciled, and I'll capture them in just a couple of thoughts, uh, those motives are a recognition that you, with Phil, have been reconciled to God and forgiven a debt that is more than you can possibly ever pay. And secondly, if you forgive and if you are reconciled, you become a blessing to the community that you are part of in Christ and a testimony to his glory because you are recognizing and living out the unity prayed for by our Lord on the night he was betrayed. The duty of love that we've talked quite a bit about springs from the fact that you were forgiven through the love of God expressed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the desire to bless others also naturally flows from the unity in the family of God that truly exists in reality because of what Christ did on the cross. But now we come in verse 21 to another motive, obedience. And Paul writes to Phil that he is confident of Phil's obedience. And this raises questions, or maybe you know the answers easily, I'm sure, but let's reiterate them. It raises a couple of questions. Obedience to who? Or obedience to what? Paul has previously in this letter made it clear he is not invoking his apostolic authority in his appeals to Phil, verses 8 and 9. So it's not to Paul's authority. 
It's not obedience to Paul. Even though it's clear that the obedience Paul references is obedience to God, Christ, and the gospel, Paul has been used to reveal by the Holy Spirit through the word the standards compelled by God's revelation of himself. Romans, if you wanted to look that up, Romans 15, 15 through 19, but you don't need to do that if you want to write that note down. You'll see where Paul, that Paul brings his authority from God. This is the obedience of faith. God is the who, and God's word is the what. Um, I've just finished reading an excellent little book. I'm sure we're going to get it in the library uh, by Kevin DeYoung. Taking God at his word, a simple little encouragement for us to get back into the word. Uh, and I encourage you to, if, when this becomes available, to, uh, to get it. God's word is the what. Once we understand who provided the standards and what reveals those standards to us, obedience simply becomes another part of the duty of love since the standards come directly from the lover of our souls who purchased eternal life for those he has called from darkness into light. There should be no doubt in our minds that our brother Phil was acquainted with Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't forgive your brother, you remember the teaching, God is not going to forgive you. Pretty straightforward. And Phil was no doubt also familiar with the principles in Matthew 18, principles of forgiveness, including the principle that you must forgive how many times? 70 times 7. Phil was also no doubt well familiar with Paul's conviction expressed to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2.7. Uh, this passage, just to, you, you can look it up later, but I'll, I'll reflect it and then you can check me, but this is the passage that shows Paul's care for the man who had been disciplined by the church in response to Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Speaking of that sinning church member who had responded to discipline by repentance, Paul said, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Forgiveness was and is an essential expression of the gospel. I need to repeat that. Forgiveness was and is an essential expression of the gospel. Phil may not yet have read Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13 that I think are in your notes, but he no doubt would, have read, would later read those letters at least. And the standards in those letters were certainly known to Phil. This was not the first time that Phil had heard of the many, many commands of God about forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. <clears throat> Phil knew that God had commanded forgiveness. And furthermore, furthermore, Paul knew that Phil knew these commands and Paul is even sure that Phil will be obedient essentially saying to him in this letter Phil I know that you will do what God has commanded you to do to forgive your brother Moose 
Paul is telling Phil that he knows Phil will obey God's commands voluntarily, without coercion, not because of the law, not out of fear, but out of a righteous heart that has been transformed in Christ. And then verse 21 goes on and indicates that Paul's expectations go even further than what Paul has asked Phil to do. And uh, it's funny reading these commentaries. You can, everybody wants to, all the commentators want to speculate about what that more was. And really, we don't know, really. Even more than I say. Um, commentators have concocted many possibilities of something specific that Paul meant, but all we have from God are the words, even more than I say. I don't think we need to speculate. Paul believed, based on Phil's love for the saints and based on the unlimited nature of the love Christ had shown him and had shown Paul and had shown Moose, that Phil would engage in more acts of love than Paul had appealed for. Paul did not want to limit those actions. I don't think Paul even knew what those further actions would be. Personally, I don't think he knew. I'm reminded... Uh, I don't know why this came up, but it did, and so I'm going to share it. The song, and I put the text of the song <clears throat> in your notes. That I'm a song I grew up hearing my father sing from the time I can remember. Some of my earliest memories. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the third verse, which I, in just doing a little research about this, that those same words that are in this third verse actually go way back, even though this song was written in the 19-teens, 1919, 1920. These words in this third verse come from Jewish scholars maybe in the ninth or 10th century. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? This always just takes my mind. I can remember driving, riding with my folks in West Texas out where there are no lights. And I would lay in the back deck of the car and look up at the sky. It seems limitless. And just be caught up in thinking about the magnitude of it could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of god above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky oh love of god how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. There is no limit to the infinite love of God, and we are called to image that love because we are in Christ. What a blessing, what a duty, what a wonderful obedience. Just yesterday, after I'd finished my notes, so you don't have this in your notes, I was reading a a little essay by Ravi Vicarious, The Scandal of the Cross, it was called. I stole this description out of that little essay and put it here. I wanted to read it to you. 
He wrote this. Think of it. Humiliation and agony. This was the path Jesus chose with which to reach out for you and for me. You see this thing we call sin, but which we so tragically minimize, breaks the grandeur for which we were created. It brings indignity to our essence and pain to our existence. It separates us from God. On the way to the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the ultimate indignity and the ultimate pain to bring us back to the dignity of a relationship with God and the healing of our souls. And so we are empowered to image the limitless love of God. Don't ever minimize that obligation and that ability. This describes the kind of love obedience calls us to image with our own forgiveness and our own reconciliation with fellow Christians. Beginning with verse 22 and continuing through verse 24, we see the subtle accountability built into Paul's appeals to Phil. The appeals are to forgive and be reconciled to Moose, to welcome Moose as more than a slave, to welcome Moose as a brother and as an honored guest. Paul says, just like you would welcome me. And Paul has given Phil all the reasons for family relationship in Christ for his appeals. And Paul has even taken any debt Moose owed Phil on himself to remove any of those, uh, what I call, but you don't understand objections that we all are good at coming up with. In verse 22, Paul suggests that he hopes to visit. And he says, prepare a guest room for me. Not so subtle. Yes, uh, Paul hopes to visit, and he wants Phil and the church that meets in Phil's house to pray that Paul will be released so that, he come, so that he can come to visit. Think about it. The last thing that Phil and those in the church that meets in his house would want is for Paul to come and find that Moose had not been forgiven, had not been reconciled. You might remember that Paul had a similar message to the church at Corinth after he had appealed to them to make some changes in their behavior, you might recall, he warned them, he warned them, he was coming to visit. Here in verse 22, uh, Paul does not say what he said to that church in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, and then verse 21, and I put this, I think, in your notes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Again, see the family? <laughs> what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul doesn't give that kind of warning, not quite as harsh. He doesn't really give a warning. It's just subtle, maybe not so subtle. I'm going to come visit. Please do what I said out of obedience, and I'm confident in your obedience, Phil, but I'm coming to see you. I plan to be there, and by the way, I'm counting on your prayers that I'll be released from prison so I can come to visit you. Get a room ready. And that word, your, Y-O-U-R, in verse 22, is plural. It's a prayer request intended not just for Phil, but also for all the members of the local church that meets in his house. Of course, Paul doesn't presume on the sovereignty of God here, but he hopes to come, and he asks for prayers that his hopes will be answered. Get a room ready. 
fix up my room. The sovereignty of God works its purposes through prayer. This is a little rabbit I'm going to change, chase, but we all need to learn this lesson. Bottom line, Paul says, I'm going to be there based on your prayer so I can see what you have done in love to respond to my appeals. Uh, John MacArthur writing about this verse, or uh, actually speaking about this verse, although the sermon is transcribed, he's, he wrote this. Paul says, my hope is that I'll be given to you and that the means of my being given to you is through your prayers. As I've said in years past, prayers move God. I love this sentence. Prayers are the nerves that move the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer is not just an exercise in futility because God's going to do what he's going to do. Prayer is the means by which God does what he's going to do. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does avail much, as James 5 tells us. Paul is very aware of the providential work of God. He referred to it back in verse 15 when he assumed that perhaps Onesimus had even run away in order that he might come back a Christian. He knew God was at work in all of this, and he says, my hope is that God's going to let me come to you, and the means of that will be through your prayers. And so what he does is he not only tells Philemon I'm coming, but he tells Philemon, in effect, start praying for my arrival. And I'll tell you what, if he knows he's coming and he's praying for Paul's arrival, that's going to affect the way he acts towards Onesimus. He's not about to have his prayer go something like, oh, Lord God, please bring the Apostle Paul soon. No way if he hasn't forgiven Onesimus. For someone like Phil, who believes in the power of prayer, this would put a burden on his shoulder. Phil didn't want to be responsible, Paul remaining in prison. I have no doubt he was praying for Paul's release, and there are many who believe, by the way, based on early Christian tradition and the writings of a man named Eusebius, that Paul was released from this first imprisonment and revisited the churches in Asia, only to be imprisoned again in Rome, where he ended up being executed. In verses 23 and 24, Paul continues this theme of accountability, subtle accountability, bringing to bear the subtle pressures of accountability to the community that Phil knows and loves well. In verse 23, Paul begins with Epaphras. Epaphras was the man used by God to spread the gospel in the area of Colossae. We can see that in Colossians 1.7 and Colossians 4.12. Phil would certainly have known Epaphras, and Epaphras may have preceded Phil in his primary pastoral responsibility for this local church in Colossae. Epaphras was with Paul in Rome, and the words in, our, in this verse, in Christ, to describe Epaphras' imprisonment suggests to us that he wasn't like Paul, literally a prisoner um, of the Roman authorities, but he was literally with Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, voluntarily in a bondservant relationship in Christ. So Paul is saying, Phil, please know that you're accountable to the man from Colossae who preceded you there and who has shown himself willing to give up his rights for the sake of the gospel, even as I am asking you to give up your rights. And then in verse 24, Paul continues to list men known to Phil and loved by Phil. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. My fellow workers. Do you see that? Who else in this 
little letter was identified as a fellow worker. Of course, back in verse 1, Phil was identified as Paul's beloved fellow worker. And so we see here in verses 23 and 24, five men precious to Paul, five men precious to Phil, five men Phil knows, and five men who know Phil. This is community. These men are family in God's household. Paul is communicating, Phil, you don't act alone. Phil, if you don't forgive, you will fracture a bond of love that exists between all of these men. And that word you, again, is plural to the local church. will violate all of our expectations of you, plural. You, Phil, and the local church are called to meet the standards created by the duty of love that you share with all these men who know you, who love you, and have high expectations from you. Let's look at a mo for a moment at what we know of these other men. First, in verse 24, Mark is listed. If there's any doubt which Mark is being referred to, that doubt is cleared up by his identity, mentioned in Colossians 4.10, the letter that came to Colossae at the same time as this letter to Philemon. Colossians 4.10 identifies him as the cousin of Barnabas. Remember this, John Mark? This is the Mark who joined Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, but abandoned them in Pamphylia, recorded in Acts 15, verses 37 and 38. You know, the Mark that caused a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that surfaced as they were about to set out to revisit the churches in the second missionary journey. Acts 15, 39 records this sharp disagreement. And we can see here and in Colossians that Paul and Mark had been reconciled. Here Mark is with Paul in Rome. Reconciliation. You see that? And this letter to Phil, the mention of Mark in Rome with Paul, emphasizes the act of reconciliation. The appearance of this name, Mark, has that added significance. Aristarchus is next. He had been a travel companion with Paul in Ephesus. Aristarchus had been with Paul during the riot in Ephesus that's recorded in Acts 19. Mark and Aristarchus were identified as Jews in Colossians 4.11. And then the next two names, Demas and Luke, were likely Gentiles. Demas later deserted Paul, we, found in, we find in 2 Timothy 4.10 and 11. But at this time, he was with Paul in Rome. And Luke was a longtime companion of Paul's. The beloved physician, we're told in Colossians 4.14. It's interesting that of the five men here listed and named in these verses, two of them authored a gospel account, Mark and Luke. So here we see Jews and Gentiles Longtime partners in the gospel, along with more recent partners, those who have at times failed, those who have been faithful, the gospel ministry has room for them all, just as it has room for slaves and masters. Paul is clearly referring to common action and common accountability to motivate our brother Phil 
to play his own part by forgiving and being reconciled to Moose, the former thief, and run away. Again, every word in this little letter of appeal has been carefully crafted for a purpose, to call brothers and sisters to be reconciled in light of their own forgiveness of much in Christ. And you here in this room this morning have been called for such a time as this. I have been called for such a time as this. What time am I referring to? I'm referring to right now, this week, this month, this year, and in the remainder of our time in this life, this, the time in which we have been called to image Christ, to show the glory of the gospel by how we live. How is that possible? It's only possible because the prayer of Paul at the end of this letter, verse 25, has been answered. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. That's not the spirit that's being talked about here. Our spirit regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Unless the revelation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has caused the grace transformation that Paul describes, this prayer for Phil and for us is an unachievable ideal. If we have been saved, however, by the call of the gospel, then we can be assured that this grace transformation is underway. The transformation depicted here is a necessity demanded by the gospel of the cross of Christ. Paul's final words in this letter are to communicate the truth that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is essential if we're going to be obedient and accountable to forgive and be reconciled to those who offend or to those we have offended. We can't do this on our own. Human nature could not forgive this offense. Paul asked Phil something that's not possible in the flesh. Our flesh wants vengeance. Paul appeals to Phil for something that's not possible by the law because the law wants justice. But grace has been extended to you and to me who are in Christ, and this is the same grace manifested in Christ's purchase of our pardon on the cross. This last verse, verse 25, once again, uses the plural word, your, and that's significant. There is a distribution of divine grace among all believers, every single one, and we are in this together. The application of this passage is pretty easy. Throughout this final lesson, the emphasis has been on obedience and accountability, concepts that my flesh sometimes recoils at, but my redeemed spirit longs for. I'm going to probably jump over the question thing, because <clears throat> I think I should go to something else, but I want to quote from our brother David Powell one last time in this study because it expresses better than I can this important need the church at large has and that we at Lakeview Christian Center have. In an age when the gospel is often understood in therapeutic terms, the concept of obedience must be reintroduced in our churches. As individuals, we must be obedient to God's will as expressed in the written word. As God's people, we must develop into communities accountable to one another as we seek to grow the body of Christ. 
Christian leaders should not shy away from disciplining or rebuking their flocks all the while, allowing themselves to be open to warnings and corrections. Are we willing to build and participate in accountability groups so that we can be reminded of the need to be faithful to God? Are we willing to grow so that our local communities of believers can be mature in Christ? P.S. History tells us that sometime after this letter, a man named Onesimus became a pastor of the thriving church at Ephesus. The godly character of this man named Onesimus was recorded and reported on by more than one historical source. Could it be that our moose was that man? If so, it provides us with still another great example of the power of forgiveness and reconciliation in the church. Forgiveness impacts people for the gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ. As an extra bonus, I, I've asked that a testimony of the power of forgiveness that was shared by John MacArthur, I've copied it, I didn't give this out. I'm, it's going to be available to you after the, after the class. I didn't want to share it with you because you'd have been reading it instead of listening, and that would have been humbling to my pride. Uh, he shared this little story, true story, with his congregation at Grace Community Church. He told this true story at the end of several sermons he preached based on this little letter from Paul to Phil about moose. I didn't include it in your outline again because I was afraid you would be distracted, but welcome to get it, and I encourage you to read it. It's a wonderful testimony of the power of forgiveness. I was going to open up the floor for questions and comments, and maybe we'll have time for that, but before that, I want to do this. It occurred to me after we did the sermon, though, so you might have to use some of those blank pages on your notes to make, some, make a list. Get a pen, pencil, make a list. Make a list of the relationships with other Christians that you have discarded. Now, by discarded, I mean you have mentally written off that relationship for whatever reason there may be. Make a list, write it on your lesson sheet. Leave some room between the names on your list because I'm going to ask you to do something else. relationships with other Christians that you have mentally written off for whatever reason. Maybe it was them, maybe it was you, maybe it was circumstances, maybe it was distance, maybe it was proximity, maybe it was, I'm not, put, put down the names of relationships that you have discarded. Here's some of the reasons. If you, and then in between, and you may not have time to do that, this right now, but what I want you to do sometime today, take that sheet with you, write down the reason why that relationship has been mentally written off when you have a few minutes to think about it. 
they really offended me or they sinned against me. I got bored. We just grew apart. Heard that before? They were too needy. They were too demanding. It would have required too much energy that continuing that relationship. Or I offended them, or I sinned against them, or they just didn't understand me. Might want to dig deeper on that one. I just didn't understand them. May want to dig deeper on that one. Geographic proximity, I moved away, they moved away, etc. And what I want you to do, please make that list. It felt like the Lord laid this on my heart. I'm not talking about relationship with unsaved family. That's important. I don't mean to negate that. I don't mean that kind of thing. I'm talking about relationships with other Christians that you have discarded for whatever reason. And after you do that, you try to be honest with yourself and write down the why. Take time to pray about what God wants you to do about that discarded relationship. And ask him for the power to do what the word of God tells you to do about that discarded relationship. And it's strange how God works. This may have only been for me. may not be for anybody else here. I don't know strange how God works because I'm thinking you know I wonder what all kinds of reasons other people had and something came to my own mind oh wish I hadn't thought of this let's pray and we can take a couple of minutes and ask some questions or perhaps somebody has a comment but let me pray Heavenly Father I know you don't uh, communicate to us accidentally and when we know we've heard from you we need to act on it <clears throat> and Lord we have heard from you in your word we don't need to have some supernatural burning bush out of which you speak you've given us a revelation in this little letter and throughout your word of the duty of love and about the fact and the truth and the reality that we are one in Christ and yet, we have found it our practice all too often to discard relationships with other believers that are precious and that were there for a purpose and a reason. Oh, we have our reasons, Lord, but help us to examine them and ask you what you would have us do. to be obedient and accountable to your word. Be glorified in this, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Questions, comments?